everybody. Welcome to this episode of What's Next Live, where I have the wonderful honor and pleasure of welcoming a dear friend back to the show, Miss Nancy Duarte. Welcome back. Uh, well, you know, I run your fan club, so it's, <laughs> it's always good to see you. <laughs> yeah, I think we run each other's fan club, I must I say. Know. You know, For those of you who don't know where Nancy is, uh, or who she is, rather, um, I would say to you that my nickname for her is the Storyteller of the Valley, and the Valley is Silicon Valley. Uh, anybody, any executive, any CEO who's worth their chops, who tells good stories about what their company is doing, most of it, I'd bet, came from something that Nancy has developed. So I'm just thrilled to have her back on the show. And we're going to be talking about the art and science of creating great presentations by telling amazing stories. But before we begin, I'm going to tell a little story. So, <laughs> oh my God. The, the way we met. It's kind of like, play, awesome. cue the music, the way we met. So it was, I guess now it's been north of 10 years, maybe 12 or 13. And Nancy was giving a presentation at the National Speakers Association. Is that right? NSA. Yep. Mm -hmm. NSA, the other NSA, so <laughs> National Speakers <laughs> Association. And I was fascinated because I was beginning sort of my keynote life and I wanted to be better. Like I just, I, I thought I was okay. I was... I wasn't scared of being on stage, but I just really wanted to be better. So I wrote a blind, cold, direct message in LinkedIn. Hi, my name is <laughs> Tiffany. And it was actually right after one of those scenes from that pre-video where I was walking on stage in front of 15,000 of my closest friends in the Verizon Center in DC for about 18 or 19 minutes. And I said, I'd love to send you a copy of it. And then I'd love to get feedback on how I could become a better storyteller right on stage. And I didn't hear anything. A couple of weeks went by and I was like, oh, I was crushed. I was like, <laughs> maybe I didn't write a good enough email. Should I write another one? Maybe she didn't get it. Like maybe she's traveling. Let me stalk her a little bit. Like what's happening, right? And then one day, ding, ding. And my life has forever changed. Oh. Now we are dear friends. So that is so funny because, you know, I get this, I get those a lot from people. And when I clicked on your video, it was like, oh my God, this woman who's got so much presence, such great storytelling, such a huge stage. I remember it was like, and I was just like, wow, someone who is already that good that wants to be excellent. I thought you kind of deserved the time. And then it's been fun. I mean, we have had, we've had a lot of fun knowing each other over the years and you've been an angel on my shoulder and you know that as we've worked on our own growth story. And anyway, she's amazing. She really knows her stuff. Well, it's, this is not about me, but you know, I love you for that. Well, it might be because this book changed my life. Woo, woo, woo. And, oh, this, thank you. and this book, look at all these sticky notes and I'm not even done with it yet. So you do beautiful work. Congratulations. Well, you know, one of the things I was asked the other day was, how is the process of writing a book? And I'm like, I, you know, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's really terrifying for me on many levels, but the number one most terrifying thing for me is I am an oral visual communicator. I'm not, and, and I'm a tactile sort of visual listen learner as yeah. well. Yeah. So how do I do a good job of taking my speaking tone, pace, words, rhythm, style, and translate that onto a 
paper, right? A book, a written word that doesn't change. And I can't go, wait, wait, wait. No, I don't want to say it that way. Let me say it a different way, right? Like, well, then on stage, you could say something and wait, hold on a second. Let me say that a different way. But in a book, you you just can't, right? Like you, you, you are in it, you are committed. In ink. committed. <laughs> it is in ink. So, you know, but we are here to talk about, and for those who, of you who are watching this, I'm showing, right? One of our very first books, Slideology, which changed my life. I have to say, because giving presentations, understanding visual typeset, block, positioning, pictures, verbiage is part of the art and science of it. So I'm going to story arc our conversation here. Let's start with Slideology. Give us the nuts and bolts of, of why that book, by the way, has continued to do just so well. Yeah, it can, I mean, it has a flip phone in there. This is like pre-iPhone. Even <laughs> It's done well. You know, I love uh, John Maydat, who ran RISD, uh, was it Kleiner Perkins? I mean, he's like, it's such a big deal. And he said, my favorite kind of review to my face at that book. And he said, it's the first time someone took design and made a business case for it. And, and that meant a lot to me, especially coming from him. And, and in it, I reference there's actually a study that ran four different times and in the UK and in the States that the companies that value design outperform first time it ran, it was like outperformed the rest of their peers on the stock market by like 50 X. And, and the next one came out as 248% more. And so it's a real thing, the ones that take the time. And it's not about making things decorative or pretty. It's about using a tool to explain really clearly and very plainly, very succinctly, exactly what you're trying to say so people understand it. So it was, it, it, it's based on, we've been doing presentations since 1988. That book came out in uh, 2008, September 2008, right when the uh, housing crisis hit. And that book is what made that year of my business that we stayed flat. And flat was the new grow. A lot of agencies in the Silicon Valley went out of business that year. So I was so happy that that book hit the shelves, September 3rd, 2008. I'll never forget the date. Well, is there anything that you would add to Slideology now? Maybe not a flip phone. I, 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 what, what's happened? So when that emerged on the market, PowerPoint, you know, all the tools, they were really ugly. They were You had to really take a hammer and an anvil just to make them look presentable. And a lot's changed since then. And so the way executives show up on a stage is different. Now you kind of skin the room. It's not really even 16 by nine. So there's a whole lot of things we would change in there. I have modified the diagram taxonomy. A lot of people say that's, those are the pages, the diagram pages are the ones that they earmark with sticky notes. And I have a deeper, richer body of work there. I was thinking about just peeling that away and making that a separate book. But we have way better case study. You know, it, it just needs, to be dolled up, just like we all do when we age, Tiff. <laughs> there you go. Well said. Like if you get Thank nothing you. out of it, that's it. We all need to be dolled up as tip we age. Day. Tip of the day. <laughs> tip of the day. Well, and didn't it get made into one of those HBR reference guides? It's one of the sort of top 10 HBR reference guides. Well, that was a different book. So I wrote Cytology, then Resonate, and then HBR approached me to write a book. They were like, okay, we want you to write a book in three months. It will be on the spin around 
rack at the airport and my daughter was just in the UK and she took a picture of it in the spinner rack and that came out in 2015. So it's been out for a while, but it was kind of best of Slotology, best of Resonate. And then it talked about like public speaking, like the actual process of delivering a talk. And that one, because it's in B schools, because it's still in the freaking spinner racks, it is in their top 10 best-selling books HBR Press has had, which is crazy because it's this green... screen little guide. I see it all the time. I know, I know. I see it, I pick it up. You know, I want to run to the front of the store and put it in the front of the store. I bet you've Uh, done that. Have you done that with your books? My employees do that. I've never done it with my books, but my employees- Of course I have. They take videotaping like they're like a crook or something moving (laughs) my books to the front. (laughs) And then I usually get caught. And then I'm like, sorry, oops. I I was just finding someone to sign it. Sorry. Well, one time I offered to sign it and and the airport bookstore is like, no, you can't you can't sign that book. I said, but I'm the author. They're like, we don't let that happen. Like, okay. I thought it'd be a fun surprise. Just sign it. Don't ask. Right. Next. Move on. Yeah. Well, all right. So we've got the art and the science of Mm -hmm. creating great presentations. Mm -hmm. The next book, which you kind of gave it away. And for those of you watching here is resonate. Like I have an entire shelf of Nancy Duarte in my home office, by the way. So this one is present visual stories that transform audiences. And I think When I had first approached you and said I wanted to get better, I think this is where now I have the right language and words to use that this is where I wanted to improve, right? That I want to move them to think differently about something. I want them to feel comfortable, uncomfortable, comfortable again, but end on a, ah, like, you know, let want to the, have them wanting more. Yeah, and like so let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me the, you know, sort of the ahas of creating meaningful content that gets people to do something. <laughs> I, I loved writing that book. And I have a book over here, the hundred greatest speeches of all time. And I kept looking through it and looking through it. And I remember having a conversation with my mom and I was like, you know, I know there's a pattern. You can feel it. You can feel it in a great speech. And she's like, yeah, there's like a cadence or a rhythm. And I'll never forget her saying a cadence and a rhythm. And then that became kind of my pursuit. I was, And so I went through about three years of storytelling, story structures from cinema to poetry to fables to screenwriters. I just studied everything, figured out all the frameworks and really did find what it is that, the, that was universal across the greatest speeches. And that is this, well, beginning, middle, and an end. Hello. Hello, Aristotle. Love you. (laughs) Beginning, middle, end. But then there was also this rise and fall of tension. So in a story or a movie, the protagonist that like rises, rises, fall, rises, rises. And then you have this relief, like, oh, there was resolution. But in a presentation, when you're trying to persuade someone to change, that rise and fall happens as a structural device. So you establish what is, and then you introduce what could be, then you go back to what is, what could be, what is, what could be. And it does create this like tension that you're longing to see resolve. And the only way you can get resolution is for the audience to rise up and take action so that you can see and realize this new future with the idea adopted. And that body of work just changed me. Like you can't take a trip through story, storytelling, story structures and not have your soul fundamentally changed. Uh, And that book did that for me. And uh, I've just kind of lived by story, story, principle, storytelling. I host at our company, we host Speak Up, which is storytelling. We do speed stories. I host dinners. I I have story night at my house. (laughs) Like it's like story, 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 story. (laughs) It's so fun. And it's just rocked me. 
just rocked me. Hence why I say she's the storyteller of the Valley. If there was any question of why I call her that, right? But, you know, two things out of what you just said. One is we could all aspire to just so deeply love Mm. and be moved by what we do every day. Yeah. And Nancy, you embody what you do, right? You just were like, I don't know how it moved me. Like, I don't know how you do that and not have it move you. Like, that is just this rich juiciness of when you get to do what you love doing. There's nothing like it. I have my days. (laughs) Don't we all? Don't we all? There's a green room in this tool and you and I caught up a little bit. (laughs) Yes, there is. There is. And so the second thing that you said, though, was that you looked across these speeches But they were from different times, Mm -hmm. different people. I mean, Mm -hmm. altogether different people. I don't mean obviously different. Yeah, right. All the way to, yeah. I don't mean different humans, obviously, but I mean just different people, like what they Mm -hmm. do, who they are, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And so finding the fact that different centuries and people and races and religions and interests and there was this common arc. Right. And you did a TED talk on this very thing, which is, by the way, I think one of the 10 most watched TED talks. What's the name of it? It's got 3 million something. Oh, I don't know. It's got 3 million. There's so many that have performed better, but it's called the secret structure of great talks. And, and I I love that you're going there because I, I love that talk. So I knew that if I could nail the structure on Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, and if I could apply it to Steve Jobs's iPhone launch speech, then I had found the pattern. Yeah. And I'm not a digital native, so I literally analyzed Steve Jobs's speech in quarter-inch graph paper. <laughs> like, ooh, like, And it's unfurled about 35 feet uh, when the whole thing was done. But I had to, like you, we were just talking about being analog. I just had to kind of back up and see it and study it. And then it, it was so fun. That was fun. Okay. So now the last pivot and the image in the story is the latest book, Data Story, which Mm -hmm. I don't know, there's this wonderful um, (laughs) endorsement on the back. I don't know for me. Um, So I really love this book, but I feel like I'm going to back up and say, for those of you, regardless of your political sway or what you think about global warming, not the time or place. However, Inconvenient Truth was a book based on a gazillion data points. That's my technical term. I mean, a gazillion data points. And how do you get people to absorb that, read it, understand it, action it? Like the things we were just talking about, right? Like transform Mm -hmm. the reader into a place where they go, my God, what are we doing to the planet? Right? Like Mm -hmm. you're trying to do that. So how do you take that book and, and make it into a movie that will move people I don't know, call Nancy Duarte. So <laughs> it, was a, it was actually a movie before it was a book. And so how do you do that? Right? Like, how do you do that? Right? So I feel like we have so much data yeah. and you could throw up in front of your CEO or your executive team and be like, here's 10 PowerPoint slides of, you know, a million things of data and go figure it out. Or you could say, what is the data trying to tell us? And then try to action a behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Data is prolific. Every role every role is a data role, almost every role it has to live and deal with data. And when you're digging through the data, the whole purpose of it really is to find an opportunity or a problem. It's kind of, that's it. I've asked people to, and challenge people to say, well, what else do you find in the data? And it's like a problem or an opportunity. And once you found the problem or the opportunity, then you have a communication problem. How is it I get people to wake up at the problem? Or how is it that I get them to exploit this massive opportunity? It's a communication 
suddenly you have a communication challenge. And that was just incredibly fun to try to figure out yet another pattern in storytelling, which was the three-act structure and how is it the rise and fall of tension happen when you're trying to communicate data in a way that will persuade people. And what was so fun is I, fun, this is fun for me, this is weekend fun, is I printed out a thousand slides, data slides. I pulled just the slides with data across all of our accounts. The one of which you work out shall remain nameless. No. <laughs> I may or may not. have. Anyway, I looked through all the slides. I just remember I just like, kind of like that mad scientist just kind of looked at my wall on my office and just found all kinds of patterns from the words. Like, well, where's the noun in the data? Where's the verb in the data? What are they asking them to do about the data? What's the energy of the verbs you ask people to do around data? What's the annotations? How come we don't just plot it? How come at Duarte we constantly feel compelled to graphically figure out the gap between the heights of the bars or, or add labels to specific things. Like, why did we highlight? It was just so fun. And it really is a tribute to my creative team and how they solve visual problems and how they solve story problems that I kind of feel like I'm an anthropologist. I just kind of dig through their work. And, and then just this, just these patterns emerge that are just gorgeous, just, just beautiful. I do the same thing when it comes to growth, right? Like, I mm -hmm. think the story is there. You have to find it in the data, yeah. but you have to be committed to not a piece, right? But really, I kind of, yeah. I, I associate it with a, my superpower is looking at all the stars in the sky and seeing the Big Dipper. And to me, mm -hmm. the stars in the sky are all these data points across all these things that are happening. And then I somehow, right, can find through the noise of really what is that Big Dipper? That. And then how do I then, quote unquote, tell that story? But Early in my career, when I was still a, a people leader, I would convey with emotion and no data. And I wasn't very successful. Mm. And then when I spent a decade at Gartner, I was conveying via a lot of data, right? And sort of very little emotion, right? It was like, well, here's the data, figure it out, right? Before it was very emotional. Like, I, I know this to be true. I need you to come along with me on this ride. And people are like, what, what? are you talking about? You're right. Oh. Okay. So I found that you needed both, right? You yeah. needed this emotional connection, that's sort of the art of it. And then you needed the science of it, which was a compelling statistic that would get people to lean and go, wait, what? Mm -hmm. And so you, you are backing up what you're saying with a point of data. You're not just reading the data on the slide, right? You're making a statement and the data is on the slide for the people, by the way, who are not like me, right? That are, I'm going to read it. So as you right. just said, Inconvenient Truth was a movie, which means it only communicated to a subset of people who like to visually be taught those things, but it left out those that want to like comb through the data and look at the sources and dig into it and fight it. And, you know, so the book follows, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that there's this balance of tension between emotion, human communication, and data behind it or in front of it, whichever way. I agree. I completely agree. And the other thing that's happening right now is we do have so much data that I actually think like whenever one thing kind of amplifies, it was Marshall McLuhan, a communication theorist who said, when a new technology emerges, it always obsolesces something. And it feels like the more and more and more data emerges, to your point, the story, the emotion, or I would say the intuition 
like people are like frozen to make a decision because it's like, well, can we get more than one piece? Can we get 22 pieces of data to support this decision? And we're just rendered like I, all I used to have when I started my business was accounting data. That was it. I had a P&L. I knew my sales figures and my billability. <laughs> and now and I made all my business decisions from that. And so it's very interesting uh, kind of what's happening is now you've got to have to combine the data and the emotion together to really turn that kind of math into meaning. And by attaching it and making the numbers clear, making the scale of the numbers clear, marveling at the scale of some of these numbers. There's ways, when I say emotion and you say emotion, we, we know what we mean. We're not saying like tell a crying story and manipulate it so people... Right. You know, we're really saying wrap it in a communication form that makes it really understandable and then creates desire for people to be like, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. You know, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to follow you or I'm going to walk beside you. That's really what that is about. Well, you know, and if you take care and pride in time in thinking through these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. your audience, your reader will absolutely notice it. You know, Growth IQ, which Nancy held up. Interestingly enough, when I first published the book, I was a little nervous, right, about what people would say or think about it. (laughs) But, But I will tell you, one of the biggest comments I got back pretty consistently was the architecture of the book. It's really good. You did such a good job on this. And the visuals... And it's skimmable, but then you you skimmed it so well that you're like, oh, I got to I gotta read between the two skimmable bits because how you highlighted it. The structure and so I amazing. tried to do that with experience mindset, but it's more data heavy. Where growth IQ wasn't mm. as data heavy mm-hmm. and experience mindset is like really data heavy. And so it was, it was, I couldn't find that right rhythm at first, you know, of like, it was just too much data. And it's also not who I am. I'm just not that kind of a data junkie. It's not my thing. That's not my thing. So how do I use the data, right, to tell the story, but I need the data to back up what I'm saying. Otherwise, people are just like, that's her opinion. I don't agree. What's been interesting in this book, The Experience Mindset, is the data is fairly black and white, yet I love that Nancy is showing the book. So again, (laughs) if you're watching this, you can see this whole little, you know, Vanna White moment. Vanna White, yeah. Yeah. But if you're listening, you're missing it. You'll have to go watch the video. But- (laughs) How do I tell that data story in a way that people will then do something? But I will tell you what's been interesting for the experience mindset is that I read the data. I heard you. I see the source of the data. It's a reputable source. I don't believe the data because it's counterintuitive or or it flies in the face of the status quo or we tried it in the past and it didn't work. So we'll just sit in our inertia and do nothing. But I heard you. I oh, believed you. I believed what you were saying, but nah, I'm going to either have to go prove out the data or I don't believe that that's what's happening here. So it's been very interesting. Oh, wow. and it's, I am listen, not expecting that. That's interesting. Yeah. So the book is only a couple of weeks old when we're, when we're doing this conversation. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is all sort of a handful of comments, right? This is not overwhelming mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Growth IQ has got five years underneath it. So, you know, I think that it's, it's a challenge to me to say this was more data heavy. Did I do a good job, right, of telling that story, of bringing them along on that? And I think if you're listening to this and you have to give presentations all the time and you're a data scientist or you have data in your role and you're trying to get people to do something, data story is the answer, <laughs> 
<laughs> it is your answer. Read the book. But if you're going to leave our audience in this last few minutes with things you want them to do, you'd like them to do, and then things cautionary, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of mm -hmm. things to avoid. Yeah. Give them the shorthand of a lot of what we've just said. What What would you say? Sure. I think the shorthand is that I would love everyone to be empathy first. We tend to sometimes think, oh, I'm, I'm going to be on a stage. I'm going to be nervous. I'm going to be talking a lot. I'm the central figure in the room. I'm the one everyone's looking at. And I would love you to flip your mindset to say, you know, the audience is the hero of your idea. Because if you if you think you're all that and, and you think you're the central figure, you're going to miss the opportunity opportunity to understand that if you convey your idea and they don't adopt it, your idea fails. And so you got to have this different mindset toward the audience and have it be about how do they accept information? How do they receive information? How do I communicate to them in the way they receive information? And that would be the one thing that you really have to do. And I would say the cautionary tale would be to make sure that you, and you hinted at this, Tiffany, it's like people are picky now. If they're going to give you 10 minutes or 20 minutes and you're not hitting it, they'll get up and walk out of your session and walk into someone else's. I mean, they do it. And, or someone will tweet. I had that happen at South by South. Someone tweeted and all of a sudden like 75 people came in the room. I'm like, I'm sorry, can I just ask you what happened? They're like, yeah, someone tweeted that you're doing a pretty good job. So I was like, oh my God. You know, so it's like people just don't have the patience anymore. And if you're wasting their time, I, I think it hurts the brand, hurts your message and hurts, like makes it so your idea won't spread. Like Ted, I don't know if you remember how novel it was when Ted Talks were 18 minutes and they went to nine, six, three. Like even people now don't have patience for an 18 minute talk that's not done well. So really think through who am I talking to? And it takes so much longer to be concise, longer than you would think to really be concise. So put the work in so they don't get up and walk out of your session. I would say that's my cautionary tip. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. You know, like I always say, I don't ever want people to leave my sessions, presentations and be like, that was a waste of my time. Yeah, they would never right? do that too. Yeah. yeah so I mean, really, up. it's like we can make more money. We cannot make more time. And I would just, you know, hate to do that. But listen, Nancy, for all the reasons I love you, these conversations are just my favorite because I get to share with my listeners just how amazing your work is. And as I said, if you didn't know who she was before you listened to this, now you know. And so you can go pick up Slideology, Resonate, Data Story. It's a great trifecta. Is there any, is another one you would add in there? Well, there's Illuminate, which is yes. about driving yes. change through story. And then of course yes. my HBR book, my spinner yes. rack book. And, and I should have grabbed, I should have grabbed Illuminate as well. That was oh, a miss on me. Okay. Can't believe I grabbed it. It's like, it's, no you know, problema. in my pile. No problem. But thank you so much, my friend, for joining us on this episode of What's Next Live. Thank you. I love you. I can't wait to see you again soon. Yeah, we'll see you soon. 